for Pacifica Radio, April 13th, 2023. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, you guys, it is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, almost 5,900 of them now. In fact, today I'm doing six, and so we'll be at 5,900 of them. Going back to yesterday, April 12th was the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the show. So you can find almost 6,000 interviews, 20 years worth there at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. And our guest today is the great Max Blumenthal from The Gray Zone. And he hosts a show called The Gray Zone here on Pacifica in Los Angeles every Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Welcome back to the show, Max. How you doing? Good. Great to be back. All right. Well, happy to have you here on the show. We got so much to talk about. First of all, I want to give you a chance, if you could, to address for a minute the controversy about Matt Taibbi, our guest on the show last week. And right after I recorded my interview with him for the show last week, he went on MSNBC and there was a giant controversy about it. And Mark Hamill says that Matt Taibbi's totally discredited now. Max, is that true? <laughs> well, Mark Hamill's I'm glad he took a break raising money for weapons for World War Three between the between NATO and Russia. Is that uh, guy the biggest letdown since Jar Jar Binks or what? Yeah, I mean, Jar Jar he actually makes Jar Jar Binks look good. But uh, no, I didn't know Matt Tybee was interviewing with you. Um, but Tybee's been making the rounds, and he gave MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan, who in my opinion is the biggest opportunist in media. An interview, and he's in and um, Hassan is a, kind of an ambush artist. He actually has a book that he recently promoted here with former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called "The Art of Winning a Debate" or something. And it's all about jumping down your opponent's throat and interrupting them constantly, and just attacking them with a Gatling gun full of pre-prepared facts that catch them off guard. And that's what he does. You know, he did that to Noam Chomsky. He did it to Slavo Žižek. These are people who aren't used to you know, the cable news scream fest. And Taibbi's similar. He's a straight shooting journalist who had reported the Twitter files, which revealed state covert state censorship of dissenting opinions, including opinions that the state censors knew to be true on Twitter and other social media platforms. This was one of the most important disclosures of the year. Um, and everyone on the left and right Anyone who believes in dissent or free speech should support it, but it was framed in terms of the culture wars. Then a lot of dishonest actors on the left said they hated it because it showed that conservatives were being disproportionately censored and they hate Elon Musk because he's uh, the richest man in the world and Taibbi was Musk's boy. Because, I mean, how else were you going to get access to the files unless Elon Musk gave you permission? He had bought Twitter. So Taibbi goes on. Mehdi Hassan's 
show on NBC Peacock. And what Hassan was trying to do was make it look like the entire thing was a fraud. The All the Twitter files, Taibbi's congressional testimony were a lie by trying to nail him on these really picky points. Uh, he argued with Taibbi over an acronym he used about whether CISA, which is a wing of the Department of Homeland Security, had flagged 80,000 Twitter accounts, or it was EIP, which is a nonprofit, which is actually, I think, a subsidiary of CISA. But, you know, this was at best peripheral to the facts that Taibbi brought forth. And then Mehdi Hassan went and he nailed him, he screamed at him, and Taibbi had, didn't even know what Hassan was referring to initially. So he said, I have to go back and check. Well, okay, I actually, maybe I got that wrong. And then Hassan does this victory lap, blue MSNBC America, cheers him on, and he makes it look like the Twitter files were fake. David Frum, the Iraq War neocon and Bush speechwriter who crafted the axis of evil phrase, which helped sell the lie of Iraqi WMD and Iraq's alliance with Al-Qaeda. You know, these were two of the biggest lies of the century. He tweeted, the Twitter files were fake. Russiagate was real after this interview. And in reality, it was Hassan who made the factual error. Taibbi got it right about CISA flagging accounts, this Department of Homeland Security wing, and he nailed them on, on nothing of value. And at one point when Taibbi pushed back, he said, you had nothing to say about Hunter Biden's laptop, which was a major scandal that was officially buried and which 50 former CIA agents declared Russian propaganda, completely lying at the height of the 2020 election. Mehdi Hassan said, I never said anything about Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, all you had to do was search his Twitter history to find that, in fact, he had a lot to say about Hunter Biden's laptop. He said it was no big deal. And then he said it was Republican propaganda. So who's the liar here? This is just a classic case of the way that cable news and particularly MSNBC managed to frame every important is issue in terms of the culture wars and then take their base of viewers that are caught in this clockwork orange style propaganda echo chamber and divert them away from learning facts that could be inconvenient to the objectives of the dominant political establishment or political sect that that essentially rules our country. It's not just the Democrats who are behind this sect, although MSNBC represents the Democratic Party. It's also the corporate Republicans, the never Trumpers, the, the, the Republicans of the Uniparty. I mean, we're, we're talking about a bipartisan pro-war, pro-censorship, anti-free speech Uniparty that Taibbi exposed. And Mehdi Hassan was sort of the hatchet man brought in to make it look like he had lied under oath in Congress. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. All right. It's anti-war radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with Max Blumenthal and um, so just real quick before we break into this other stuff, can you just sum up for us real quick then, if the story is not that, oh, Matt Taibbi got all his facts wrong and is a servant of the evil billionaire overlord weapons contractor, what is the truth? What is the narrative that you took out of the Twitter files or have taken so far, Max? Well, we've been writing about this at the gray zone and I have been writing about it since the trigger point or the signal event 
which helped consolidate the control of the intelligence services over what we see and hear, which was the election of Donald Trump and the introduction of Russiagate, the idea that Trump was under the control of Vladimir Putin somehow, either financially or politically or ideologically, and that Russia had interfered in the election and swung it to Donald Trump. And we were writing about, I, I actually was writing about during the first days of ushering in the gray zone about this dashboard called Hamilton 68, which claimed to track Russian bots. It was run ostensibly under the watch of the German Marshall Fund. Um, but it was really run through this nonprofit called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which was sponsored by the US government, European governments, and was essentially an intelligence front. And they brought in these spooks to create this phony dashboard that um, then reporters would cite and say there's been heavy Russian bot activity around the Parkland shooting, or there's been heavy Russian bot activity seeking to amplify Colin Kaepernick's take a knee campaign protesting police brutality. And if I, I, I took a look at the dashboard and the people behind it and was able to conclude and demonstrate in clinical detail, I didn't have access to any files, that the people behind it, specifically this character Clint Watts, were complete frauds and had no experience either in the world of online data, in, in the online data or tech world, but who also were just serial liars. And that Clint Watts actually lied under oath to Congress, not, not Matt Taibbi, but this was back in 2017. And then I looked at the actual, the way they manipulated data and some of the sites that they were tracking as vehicles for Russian bots, they just grabbed out of thin air. Um, they were tracking like stars and stripes, this, this military, uh, outlet and they were tracking the intercept and they were tracking just any random site. It made no sense. And no reporter bothered to look into it at all as they constantly reported on this. I mean, if you're listening right now, just Google Hamilton 68, you'll see NPR, the New York times publishing front page stories on Russian bots essentially dictating how social media functioned. And the point of that was to uh, create the momentum for government censors from the intelligence agencies to be able to come into the offices of social media companies in Silicon Valley and say, let us decide what the public sees and hears. Let us tell you what you can have on your what, what should be censored, what accounts should be removed. And Twitter actually had an internal debate. It's uh, director of, of um, I can't even remember what his title was, but he was basically the, the arch censor, the central inquisitor at Twitter. His name was Yoel Roth. He was uh, encountered by Hamilton 68 and all of these spooks. And he said, you know, I actually don't even find these people credible and I'm pro-censorship. Um, I think we should try to mollify them and kind of keep them at arm's length. But ultimately, what Yoel Roth and his team at Twitter did was let them start to dictate to them which accounts can and can't be seen. And of course, they also started targeting pro-Trump accounts because this was an, an effort to uh, kneecap Donald Trump and ultimately get him off Twitter, which succeeded. So the people at Twitter knew this was fake. They never got any real data from Hamilton 68. 
And they never went to the press and never told the press, you know what, you're all being lied to, you're all a bunch of suckers. So this is, this all came out in the Twitter files. We know about these internal Twitter deliberations and them concluding Hamilton 68 was fake and that, the, that there actually were literally no Russian bots which had any influence on anything in the United States political sphere during the Trump era. And so we were dealt a gigantic fraud. The Twitter files exposed it. Taibbi had this story. And of course, the mainstream press that reported on this sham of Russian bots and Russian meddling did not touch it. I mean, it was like the biggest blow to the Russiagate narrative. And, but it's only one, <clears throat> one of many pieces that were exposed in the Twitter files. I mean, one other thing I could quickly point to is that the censors from the Biden administration were ordering Twitter to remove information that was factual about vaccine injuries, injuries from the COVID mRNA vaccine. They said, even though these um, testimonies of injuries are true and these are real people, we should not allow them to have access to the public or to fellow members of the public, fellow citizens, because it will promote vaccine hesitancy. So they're censoring true information that interfered with their political uh, and I would say financial objectives. Right. Again, one's very significant for the public to see this. It's as, as significant as anything we saw appear in WikiLeaks and it's been buried. And now the messenger is being shot in broad daylight on MSNBC. Yep. Well, that's why it's up to us. And uh, good thing we have radio shows here on KPFK. And I guess here's a good place for me to splice in my fundraising pitch. We have all this Israel-Palestine stuff going on with this far right-wing government coalition come in with Netanyahu again. And, you know, controversy at the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, of course, rockets and bombs. So I don't know when's the cut on point here, but you want to take us back a few weeks and fill us in what's going on? Well, a few weeks ago, all the headlines were about the uh, so-called pro-democracy protests in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, where what's left of Israel's supposedly enlightened society, liberal Israelis had flooded the streets to protest judicial reforms or what they would call judicial manipulation by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is at the helm of the most far-right coalition in Israel's history. And these judicial reforms were going to give the political, politically elected body of Israel's government, government, you know, the prime minister's office and the parliament, which is dominated by the right, the Knesset, more control over the judiciary. For liberal Israelis, the judiciary, the Supreme Court specifically, is like a holy sanctum. And also uh, for liberal Zionist American Jews who want to believe in the lie of Israel as a, a sort of tortured democracy. Um, Israel's Supreme Court was once headed by the most famous justice in Israeli history, a liberal named Aharon Barak, who ushered in Israel's basic laws. And these laws are a substitute for constitution in Israel. They're sort of recommendations to other judges. And they do provide some basis for human rights or individual rights. There otherwise is no constitution in Israel. There can't be because there are too many warring factions. Uh, and they fight over religion and culture primarily. So Aharon Barak also happens to be the mentor to Elena Kagan, who's a U.S. Supreme Court justice. So these protests, they had huge currency 
and liberal media in the U.S. was focused heavily on them. They started to do real damage to Netanyahu when he fired his defense chief. And this led to military reservists, everyone in Israel, every male who after completing their military duty has to participate in reserve duty. Um, so military reservists, many of them announced that they were not going to participate in their reserve duty. Then you had the Air Force pilots who tend to come from more centrist or elite cultural backgrounds in Israeli society. They said that they're not going to participate in training over this. Low-level Mossad employees then went out into the street. And there's a recent leak from these Pentagon files that have been appearing in a trickle that asserted that the Mossad itself was seeking to stir up these protests against Netanyahu. So the point is that Netanyahu was in political trouble and he faces as his chief opposition a coalition that was before it preceded him known as blue and white. <clears throat> they don't have any compelling single figure. There's no single figure as popular, as well known as Netanyahu. But as a coalition, they could topple him. And they they have a lot of former generals, Benny Gantz, for example. I mean, these are not exactly um, humane uh, left-wing peaceniks, but they have a lot of people uh, ready to enter power if Netanyahu falters. And Netanyahu has been holding his coalition together. This is another important piece to understanding the background here. He's been holding his coalition together through a small, openly fascist, uh, religiously supremacist party called Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power. They hold basically three seats, two seats, but if he doesn't have this as part of his parliamentary coalition, then his coalition falls apart. And so the two figures associated with this party, Idemar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, have been given important roles in his government, figures who were persona non grata just a few years ago because they are so openly fascist, they want to forcibly expel, if not exterminate, all Palestinian citizens of Israel. Smotrick advocates for religiously or ethnically segregated maternity wards for Arabs and Jews. Ben Gvir has been a participant in race riots in the occupied West Bank. He represents the most extreme, most violent faction of the settlers. He's been given control of the Israeli police. And they've tried to neuter him and kneecap him and not allow him to command the police, but he effectively is the security minister of the police, particularly in the West Bank. Smotrich is the finance minister, so he gets to just channel loads and loads of money into the settlements. And so this is infuriating Netanyahu's opponents, although they don't exactly have any that much concern for Palestinians. So Netanyahu, in order to try to turn down the temperature, he cuts a deal with Ben Gavir. And he says, I'm going to give you a private militia, basically your own little death squad of 2,000 men. You can go and recruit them from the hooligans of the far-right soccer clubs like Beitar Jerusalem. And you just stop pushing these judicial reforms that are making everyone so mad. And he agrees, <laughs> and w w which is just insane in itself that, he, that this fascist extremist settler is going to get his own private militia. The person he wants to run it is a former colonel named Avi Noam Emuna, who is 
actually filmed during the 2014 assault on Gaza saying, um, shoot Palestinians in the back as they flee and don't cry. Uh, that's our job in going into Gaza. Hey guys, Scott here for Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego at JewelryStoreSD.com. They do business nationwide. They sell jewelry and watches, specializing in engagement rings. You know, in case you're in love with somebody. They also specialize in one-of-a-kind vintage and antique jewelry, fully serviced pre-owned fine watches, such as Rolex, Patek, Philippe, Cartier, and any high-end brand. Leos also services high-end watches faster and cheaper than going to a factory service center. Leos takes all the stress out of shopping for jewelry and engagement rings, and always at the right price. They deal nationwide over the phone at 619-299-1500. That's Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego. Go to JewelryStoreSD.com to check out their fine selection and to find out more. Hey y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. So all of this continues to build for Netanyahu. The protests um, are starting to wane a little bit, but he's in trouble. You can even see in the U.S. Um, opinion sections, like the two most important members of the Likud lobby in the U.S., who emerged as supporters of Netanyahu and the Likud party and have made it further than anyone in the sort of beltway commentariat. Jen Rubin at the Washington Post and Brett Stevens at the New York Times. They're both creations of the Israel lobby. They have criticized Netanyahu heavily. So along comes the perfect crisis for Netanyahu, which is over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this is in the third holiest site in Islam, Traditional Orthodox Jewish prayer forbids Jews from praying there. And the worshipers at Al-Aqsa consider it to be the most vile desecration of this holy ground that Idemar Ben-Gvir and his fascist cohorts have been attempting to invade the mosque and pray there for months. Ever since Ben-Gvir came into power as security minister, he was using the opportunity to have Israeli police escort him to the base of the mosque and force all worshipers out. So April, early April rolls around. Early April is Passover, which is interpreted by the settlers in an extremely ethnocentric way. And it culminates with the 10 plagues, the killing of the firstborn of the Gentiles, which they use as justification for killing Palestinians, and the, the holiday of Ramadan during the beginning of the hot temperatures in Jerusalem and across the Holy Land. It's the perfect season for conflict. And Ben Gvir goes on Israeli national TV and calls to storm the Al-Aqsa compound. He calls for rioting at the Al-Aqsa compound. His followers and pals who want to destroy Al-Aqsa and replace it with a third Jewish temple to usher in the Messiah begin attempting to pay off local Arabs in Jerusalem 5,000 shekels 
to hide a lamb or sheep in their home so that they can smuggle it into Al-Aqsa and sacrifice it to God as they are commanded to do, which would have just been atrocious. So they are planning to go in on, I believe, April 4th or April 5th. And so that night, Palestinian worshipers stay late after evening prayers for a traditional Muslim ceremony where you, you pray after evening prayers, but it was also an act of resistance against the settlers. The Israeli police come in. I mean, these are actually the border police. They call them the Magav in Israel, and they're notoriously brutal. They come in and they just start beating Palestinians with truncheons, trying to force them out, shooting them with rubber bullets, shooting them with tear gas. It's the most violence we've seen there at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it sets the region on fire. Now, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, who actually have access to weapons, heavy weapons like rockets, they have declared that they, their factions, their armed factions, and their leadership in Hamas have declared that they will not allow Palestinians to be humiliated in Jerusalem. And actually, the last three wars or military escalations we've seen between the armed factions in the Gaza Strip and Israel have been triggered by events in Jerusalem in which the armed factions in Gaza, who had the ability to respond militarily, did so. And so they did so. They fired rockets, and rockets came in from is into Israel's north from southern Lebanon, where there are many armed factions allied with Hezbollah. These were not necessarily Hezbollah, but Hezbollah, the largest and most powerful armed resistance faction in Lebanon, gave the green light. And so rockets flew into Israel's colonies in the north and in the south, and Israel responded, not necessarily by attacking heavily uh, by, you know, at trying to assassinate the leadership of these factions, but by bombing essentially open fields. Uh, Netanyahu did not want a major escalation, but he got what he wanted because that escalation did turn down the temperature on, or at least relieve the pr political pressure he was facing internally from his domestic foes. Um, and now we're sort of, I think we're sort of at an interregnum between one conflict and another, um, and where it's heading, I can only assume will be another escalation. Well, I got to tell you, Max, I saw a tweet the other day about this parade of so-called settlers or colonists on the West Bank flanked by IDF. It was, I don't know, high hundreds, if not thousands of people. And the caption at least said that they were going to the different Palestinian cities on the West Bank to Hebron and Janine, I guess, and I'm not sure the whole list. but And so I was wondering if you know about that, and is that the portent of the next conflict you're talking about there? Well, yes. I mean, this is, this is serious. You have thousands trying to march to one colonial outpost in the West Bank, and this is happening at the highest point of violence in the West Bank since the Second Intifada. In many ways, it is an intifada. And the settlers, they want to push the Palestinians deeper into violence in order to trigger a response from the Israeli military. I mean, that's kind of what this is about. 
So the Palestinians in the West Bank had been not only under the control of the Israeli military and its so-called civil administration, which runs a military dictatorship in the West Bank, but also the Palestinian Authority, which functions kind of like a, a Vichy regime or the way that the Indian police uh, function in the reservation system where they can only arrest Palestinians. Their job is to prevent Palestinian armed resistance and coordinate with the Israeli military. In 2007, the Palestinian Authority, not the Israeli military, wiped out the last vestiges of Palestinian armed resistance in the Balata refugee camp of Nablus. And for the first time since 2007, starting last year, early last year, we saw a group emerge called the Lion's Den in the West Bank, which has been taking on Israeli settlers and specifically fighting the Israeli military in and around Palestinian cities. Um, and one key flashpoint has been Huara, which is a town right outside Nablus that has been a real site of settler violence, settler rioting. And the lion's den cuts across all factions. It's young people who don't want to be part of Hamas. They don't like the Palestinian Authority, which is run by Fatah. They don't want to be part of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They just want to be fighting the occupation. They're attacking checkpoints. And we've started to see attacks inside Tel Aviv. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was an attack re, uh, recently that just killed a, a tourist and wounded seven people. These are the, we haven't seen these since the second intifada. And there's been a shooting attack in the West Bank, I think just today. Um, this is all due to the increased violence of the Israeli military and the settlers who function as kind of their... Uh, like they're wild dogs on a leash, you know, can kind of push the parameters of violence further than the military is able to, and then allow the military to come in. And last year, in terms of Palestinian deaths in the West Bank, the death rate was higher than at any point since the second intifada. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing at a very, at a low level, a war unfolding already. It's essentially low intensity warfare every day in the occupied West Bank and to a certain extent in East Jerusalem where there's increased access to weapons among Palestinians. All right. So in the short amount of time that we have here left with uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, he's the author of Goliath and a real expert in Israel, spent years over there writing this book about this. And you brought up this stuff that just sounds completely crazy, but can you shed light, please, on this stuff about rebuilding the Third Temple and sacrificing animals and starting the Third World War here? Well, before the destruction of the Second Temple, people who want, who are affiliated with the more extreme factions of the religious nationalist settler movement believe that Jews did not pray at the Western Wall. They actually sacrificed animals in large, in masses. They sacrificed many, many animals, and they want to bring that back. They consider prayer at the Western Wall in the old city of Jerusalem to be uh, an act of Jewish submission to secularism, and they want to flood that area in the blood of sheep. They say so. And these are people who have attempted for decades to hatch a plan to blow up the third holiest site in Islam, Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, because it's at the site of what they call the Temple Mount, where the third temple should be rebuilt. They've put forward a blueprint for plans to build the third temple with you know, high-level architects, and they've 
started a nonprofit called the Temple Institute. They have a temple movement that's getting popular across Israel. And it's all about messianism and ushering in uh, essentially Armageddon for Jews. It's the eschatology that's gained so much popularity with Christians in the United States gaining popularity in a constant low intensity war zone among Jews. And you know they're defying traditional Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox authorities in calling for Jewish prayer at the Al-Aqsa compound. Basically, ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Judaism says that you cannot pray at the Temple Mount or where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is unless you are sprinkled with water that is blended with the ashes of a red heifer. And so what the temple movement has done is they coordinated with a Christian Zionist in Texas to bring red heifers to Israel mm -hmm. so that they can slaughter them and get their ashes and begin to purify Jews as they head to Al-Aqsa to, to get that little yeah. uh, restriction out of the way. You know, I and, I got to tell you, Max, there's an article by Justin Raimondo 20 years ago called Beware the Red Heifer. And it's about how some born-agains, I guess, associated with John Hagee down in San Antonio had yeah. paid for them to genetically engineer a pure red heifer. No restriction on that in the Bible. And then, but unfortunately, it has to grow to a certain age to be certified pure red. And these kept coming out with a little bit of white left on the tail. But well, Raimondo is right. I mean, it took them till 2012 to be able to genetically engineer them. But as soon as they could do that, they, they brought them over. And that is in place along with the tactics that I discussed at the beginning of this interview of actually attempting to bribe Arabs to smuggle lambs or sheep into the Al-Aqsa compound to allow them to slaughter them there. All of this is coming to a head and it's fueling regional violence. I mean, it, it, it's it's sort of kindling the flames for a regional war. Um, and I should say that one of the key figures in this temple movement is a extremist rabbi named Yisrael Ariel, who was arrested along with a group called the Jewish Underground for attempting to bomb the Al-Aqsa Mosque back in 1981. He also participated in assassinations and bombings of Palestinian mayors in Bethlehem and Ramallah and the West Bank who were trying to organize Palestinian resistance, civil resistance to the occupation. He's an actual murderer and he is one of the mentors of this figure, Idemar Ben-Gavir, who is in the Israeli governing coalition and is in charge now of his own private state-backed militia. So you can really see the progression from just straight up religious inspired terrorism to government control and influence over what takes place not only in Israel, but across the region through this governing coalition. Yeah, it's just amazing. And now, so, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, you told me that from spending time over there, you said the political spectrum is from Dick Cheney and then go from the right there till you get to Mussolini or something. And I guess there's a small group of, you know, so-called liberals in Tel Aviv or something. But, I mean, the labor movement or the labor party is essentially nothing. But so is it's moved even further to the right than that since then, basically, or it's got the people on the furthest fringe from them now have more power than really ever before is the point. Well, when, when, when ISIL was in the news, the Islamic state in the Levant, I came up with this 
uh, phrase that trended on Twitter as a hashtag and actually generated headlines, including an Israeli media, JSIL, the Jewish state in Israel and the Levant, that's who's in charge of the government right now. I mean, the, their best political or historical parallel wouldn't be Mussolini, it would be ISIS. And they have the same end times vision that ISIS has, the same viciousness, brutality, and inhumanity towards those of other religions. And the same, and, and, and more U.S. support than ISIS got. <laughs> ISIS did get a considerable amount. Which is a lot, yeah. All right, I'm so sorry that we're all out of time, but that's a great place to end it. Thanks very much for your time again on the show, Max. You're great. All right, thanks a lot, Scott. All right, you guys, that's Max Blumenthal. He wrote the book Goliath, and he did this great movie called Killing Gaza, which you can watch on the internet. It's so good, and... He, uh, of course, is the director of the Gray Zone Project over there. Tons of great journalism there. That's at thegrayzone.com. And he's here on Tuesdays at 5 o'clock on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And that's it for me. I'm Scott Horton. I'm here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you all next week.